Hi, everybody. Carla here, welcoming you back to another episode of Great Literature here at Carla Reads the Classics. How's it going? You know, this has always been my absolute favorite time of year. The beautiful weather, the leaves changing color, and the anticipation of the holiday season. I I just love it. And maybe it's because I was born during the season, 3 November to be exact. I don't know. I just, I just absolutely love it. Do you have a favorite season? Let me know. Now, today I have for you more from the French master of the short story himself, Guy de Maupassant. You know, in his day, he wrote over 300 short stories and I am obsessed. So expect to hear more from him on this podcast. Up first, I present to you A Coward and the ending of which totally blew me away. Now, if you get the pun after listening to the story, drop a comment in the Q&A and I'll pin you on Spotify. Now, the second story I have for you is a light romantic story. It's about a middle-aged couple who decides to revisit a place of their early acquaintance and it gets a little weird, shall we say, or maybe uncomfortable. You decide which. And rolling right along, I have for you a title called A Dead Woman's Secret. And here, a family gathers around their mother, and they are surprised by what is revealed in some of her letters. So, hmm, that's an interesting one. And the fourth story is called Indiscretion, which I leave to your thoughts and imagination. Please let me know your thoughts about these stories. If you have a favorite, let me know. And now for a bit of business, please check the episode details for the link to become a paid subscriber to the podcast. Your $6.99 a month gives you access to everything in the Carlet Reads the Classics library. And you surely don't want to miss the upcoming um, readings of great classics like War and Peace by Tolstoy, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, to name a few. You'll also find the link where you can get great merchandise, great Carla Reads the Classics merchandise, and also a way that you can make a donation to the podcast today. So please check those out. I certainly would appreciate it as I continue to bring you great literature here at Carla Reads the Classics. Thank you guys so much for listening. Please stay tuned. A Coward by Guy de Maupassant Society called him Handsome Signoles. His name was Viscount Gontran Joseph de Signoles. An orphan and possessed of an adequate income, he cut a dash, as the saying is. He had a good figure and a good carriage, a sufficient flow of words to pass for wit, a certain natural grace, an air of nobility and pride, a gallant mustache and an eloquent eye, attributes which women like. He was in demand in drawing rooms, sought after, sought after for vows, and in men he inspired that smiling hostility which is reserved for vital and attractive rivals. He had been suspected of several love affairs of a sort calculated to create a good opinion of a youngster. He lived happily, carefree, and the most complete well-being of body and mind. He was known to be a fine swordsman and still a finer shot with a pistol. When I come to fight a duel, he would say, I shall choose pistols. With that weapon, I'm sure of killing my man. One evening, he went to the theater with two ladies, quite young, friends of his, whose husbands were also of the party, and after the performance, he invited them to take ices at Tortoni's. They had been sitting there for a few minutes when he noticed a gentleman at a neighboring table staring obstinately at one of the ladies of the party. 
She seemed embarrassed and ill at ease and bent her head. At last, she said to her husband, There's a man staring at me. I don't know him, do you? The husband, who had seen nothing, raised his eyes but declared, No, not in the least. Half smiling, half in anger, she replied, It's very annoying. The creature's spoiling my ice. Her husband shrugged his shoulders. Deuce take him. Don't appear to notice it. If we had to deal with all the discourteous people one meets, we'd never have done with them. But the Viscount had risen abruptly. He could not permit this stranger to spoil an ice of his giving. It was to him that the insult was addressed, since it was at, at his invitation and on his account that his friends had come to the café. The affair was no small business, and it was of no business to anyone but himself. He went up to the man and said, "'You have a way of looking at those ladies, sir, which I cannot stomach. Please be so good as to set a limit to your persistence.' "'Hold your tongue,' replied the other. "'Take care, sir.' retorted the Viscount, clenching his teeth. You'll force me to overstep the bounds of common politeness. The gentleman replied with a single word, a vile word, which rang across the cafe from one end to the other, and, like the release of a spring, jerked every person present into an abrupt movement. All those with their back towards him turned around, and all the rest raised their heads. Three waiters spun round on their heels like tops. The two ladies behind the counter started, then the whole upper half of their bodies twisted round as though they were a couple of automata worked by the same handle. There was profound silence, then suddenly a sharp noise resounded in the air. The Viscount had boxed his adversary's ears. Everyone rose to intervene. Cards were exchanged. Back in his home, the Viscount walked for several minutes up and down his room with long, quick strides. He was too excited to think. A solitary idea dominated his mind. A duel. But as yet the idea stirred in him no emotion of any kind. He had done what he was compelled to do. He had shown himself to be what he ought to be. People would talk of it, would approve of him, congratulate him. He repeated aloud, speaking as a man speaks in severe mental distress. What a hound that fellow is. Then he sat down and began to reflect. In the morning, he must find seconds. Whom should he choose? He searched his mind for the most important and celebrated names of his acquaintance. At last, he decided on the Marquis de la Tonore and Colonel Bourdin, an aristocrat and a soldier. They would do excellently. Their names would look well in the papers. He realized that he was thirsty and drank three glasses of water, one after the other. Then he began to walk up and down again. He felt full of energy. If he played the gallant, the gallant showed himself determined, insisted to the most strict and dangerous arrangements, demanded a serious duel, a thoroughly serious duel, a positively terrible duel, his adversary would probably retire and apologize. He took up once more the card which he had taken from his pocket and thrown down once upon the table and read it again as he had read it before in the cafe at a glance and in the cab by the light of each gas lamp on his way home. George Lamille, 51 Rue Muncie. Nothing more. He examined the grouped letters. They seemed to him mysterious, full of confused meaning. George Lamille? Who was this man? What did he do? Why had he looked at the woman in that way? 
Was it not revolting that a stranger, an unknown man, could thus disturb a man's life without warning just because he chose to fix his insolent eyes upon a woman? Again, the Viscount repeated aloud, What a hound! Then he remained standing stock still, lost in thought, his eyes still fixed upon the card. A fury against the scrap of paper awoke him, a fury of hatred in which was mingled a queer sensation of uneasiness. This sort of thing was so stupid. He looked up and he looked up. He took up an open knife which lay close at hand and thrust it through the middle of the printed name as though he had stabbed a man. So he must fight. Should he choose swords or pistols? For he regarded himself as the insulted party. With swords, there would be less risk, but with pistols, there was a chance that his adversary might withdraw. It is very rare that a duel with swords is fatal, for mutual prudence is apt to restrain combatants from engaging at sufficiently close quarters for a point to penetrate deeply. With pistols, he ran a grave risk of death, but he might also extricate himself from the affair with all the honors of the situation and without actually coming to a meeting. I must be firm, he said. He will take flight. The sound of his voice set him trembling, and he looked round. He felt very nervous. He drank another glass of water, then began to undress for bed. As soon as he was in bed, he blew out the light and closed his eyes. I've the whole of tomorrow, he thought, in which to set my affairs in order. I'd better sleep now so that I shall be quite calm. He was very warm in the blankets, but he could not manage to compose himself to sleep. He turned this way and that, lay for five minutes upon his back, turned on his left side, then rolled over again to his right. He was still thirsty. He got up to get a drink. A feeling of uneasiness crept over him. Is it possible that I'm afraid? Why did his heart beat madly at each familiar sound in his room? When the clock was about to strike, that faint squeak of the rising spring made him start, so shaken he was that for several seconds afterwards he had to open his mouth to get his breath. He began to reason with himself on the possibility of his, of his being afraid. Shall I be afraid? No, of course he would not be afraid, since he was resolved to see the matter through and had duly made up his mind to fight and not to tremble. But he felt so profoundly distressed that he wondered, can a man be afraid in spite of himself? He was attacked by his doubts, this uneasiness, this terror. Suppose a force more powerful than himself masterful, irresistible, overcame him. What, what would happen? Yes, what might not happen? Assuredly, he would go to the place of the meeting since he was quite ready to go. But supposing he trembled, supposing he fainted, he thought of the scene, of his reputation, his good name. There came upon him a strange need to get up and look at himself in the mirror. He relit his candle. When he saw his face reflected in the polished glass, he scarcely recognized it. It seemed to him as though he had never yet seen himself. His eyes looked enormous to him, and he was pale. Yes, without a doubt, he was pale, very pale. He remained standing in front of the mirror. He put out his tongue as though to ascertain the state of his health, and abruptly the thought struck him like a bullet. The day after tomorrow, at this very hour, I may be dead. His heart began beating again, its furious beating. 
The day after tomorrow, at this very hour, I may be dead. This person facing me, this me that I see in the mirror, will be no more. Why, here I am. I, I'm looking at myself. I, I feel myself alive. And in 24 hours, I shall be lying in that bed, dead, my eyes closed, cold, and animate, vanished. He turned back towards the bed and distinctly saw himself lying on his back in the very sheets he had just left. He had the hollow face of a corpse. His hands had the slackness of hands that will never make another movement. At that, he was afraid of his bed, and to get rid of the sight of it, he went into the smoking room. Mechanically, he picked up a cigar, lit it, and went to walk up and down again. He was cold. He went to the bell to wake his valet, but he stopped, even as he raised his hand to the rope. He will see that I am afraid. He did not ring. He lit the fire. His hands shook a little with a nervous tremor. Whenever they touched anything, his brain whirled, his troubled thoughts became elusive, transistory, and gloomy. His mind suffered all the effects of intoxication, as though he were actually drunk. Over and over again, he thought, what shall I do? What is to become of me? His whole body trembled, seized with a jerky shuddering. He got up and, going to the window, drew back the curtains. Dawn was at hand, a summer dawn. The rosy sky touched the town, its roofs and walls with its own hue. A broad descending ray, like the caress of the rising sun, enveloped the awakened world. And with the light, hope, a gay, swift, fierce hope, filled the Viscount's heart. Was he mad that he had allowed himself to be struck down by fear before anything was even settled, before his seconds had even been chosen, before he knew whether he was going to fight? He washed, dressed, and walked out with a firm step. He repeated to himself as he walked, I must be energetic, very energetic. I must prove that I am not afraid. His seconds, the Marquis and the Colonel, placed themselves at his disposal, and after hearty handshakes, discussed the conditions. You are anxious for a serious duel? asked the Colonel. Yes, a very serious one, replied the Viscount. You still insist on pistols? said the Marquis. Yes. You will leave us free to arrange the rest? In a dry, jerky voice, the Viscount stated, Twenty paces at the signal, raising the arm and not lowering it. Exchange of all shots till one is seriously wounded. They are excellent conditions, declared the colonel in a tone of satisfaction. You shoot well. You have every chance. They departed. The Viscount went home to wait for them. His agitation, momentarily quietened, was now growing minute by minute. He felt a strange shivering, a ceaseless vibration down his arms, down his legs, in his chest. He could not keep still in one place, neither seated nor standing. There was not the least moistening of saliva in his mouth, and at every instant he made a violent movement of his tongue as though to prevent it sticking to his palate. He was eager to have breakfast, but could not eat. Then the idea came to him to drink in order to give himself courage, and he sent for a decanter of rum, of which he swallowed six liquor glasses full, one after the other. A burning warmth flooded through his body, followed by immediate sudden dizziness of the mind and spirit. Now I know what to do, he thought. Now it is all right. But by the end of an hour, he had emptied the decanter, and his state of agitation had once more become intolerable. 
He was conscious of a wild need to roll on the ground, to scream, to bite. Night was falling. The ringing of a bell gave him such a shock that he had not strength to rise and welcome his seconds. He did not even dare speak to them, to say good evening to them, to utter a single word for fear they guessed the whole thing by the alteration in his voice. Everything is arranged in accordance with the conditions you fixed, observed the colonel. At your first adversary, at, at first your adversary claimed the privileges of the insulted party, but he yielded almost at once and has accepted everything. His seconds are two military men. Thank you, said the Viscount. Pardon us, interposed the Marquis, if we merely come in and leave again immediately, but we have a thousand things to see to. We must have a good doctor, since the combat is not to end until a serious wound is inflicted, and you know that pistol bullets are no laughing matter. We must appoint the ground near a house to which we may carry the wounded man if necessary, etc. In fact, we shall be occupied for two or three hours arranging all there is to arrange. Thank you, said the Viscount a second time. You are all right, asked the colonel. You are calm. Yes, quite calm. Thank you. The two men retired. When he realized that he was once more alone, he thought that he was going mad. His servant had lit the lamps and he sat down at the table to write letters. After tracing at the head of a sheet, this is my will, he rose, shivering and walked away, feeling incapable of connecting two ideas, of taking a resolution, of making any decision whatsoever. So he was going to fight. He could no longer avoid it. Then what was the matter with him? He wished to fight. He had absolutely decided upon this plan of action and taken his resolve, and he now felt clearly, in spite of every effort of mind and forcing of will, that he could not retain even the strength necessary to get him to the place of the meeting. He tried to picture the duel, his own attitude, and the bearing of his adversary. From time to time, his teeth chattered in his mouth with a slight clicking noise. He tried to read and took down the Chateau Villard's code of dueling. Then he wondered, Does my adversary go to shooting galleries? Is he well known? Is he classified anywhere? How can I find out? He bethought himself of Baron Vaux's book on marksmen with the pistol and ran through it from end to end. George Lamille was not mentioned in it, yet if the man were not a good shot, he would surely not have promptly agreed to that dangerous weapon and those fatal conditions. He opened in passing a case by Gaston René, standing on a small table, and took out one of the pistols, then placed himself as though to shoot with a raised arm. But he was trembling from head to foot, and the barrel moved in every direction. At that, he said to himself, It's impossible. I cannot fight in this state. He looked at the end of the barrel, at the little black deep hole that spits death. He thought of the disgrace, of the whispers at the club, of the laughter in the drawing rooms, of the contempt of women, of the allusions in the papers, of the insults which cowards would fling at him. He was still looking at the weapon and, raising the hammer, caught a glimpse of a cap gleaming beneath it like a tiny red flame. By good fortune or forgiveness, the pistol had been left loaded. At the knowledge, he was filled with a confused, inexplicable sense of joy. If, when face to face with the other man, he did not show a proper gallantry and calm, he would be lost forever. 
he would be sullied, branded with a mark of infamy, hounded out of society, and he would not be able to achieve that calm, that swaggered poise. He knew it. He felt it. Yet he was brave since he wanted to fight. I, he was brave since... The thought which hovered in him did not even fulfill, it, fulfill itself in his mind, but opening his mouth wide, he thrust in the barrel of his pistol with savage gesture until it reached his throat and pressed on the trigger. When the valet ran in at the sound of the report, he found him lying dead upon his back. A shower of blood had splashed the white paper on the table and made a great red mark between these four words. This is my will. And that brings us to the ending of A Coward by Guy de Maupassant. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for story number two. And now for story number two, which I forgot to give you the title for when I did the introduction. Anyway, this is called In the Wood. As the mayor was about to sit down to breakfast, word was brought to him that the local policeman with two prisoners was waiting for him at the Hotel de Ville. He went there at once and found old Hagdur standing guard before a middle-class couple whom he was regarding with a severe expression on his face. The man, a fat old fellow with a red nose and white hair, seemed utterly dejected, while the woman, a little roundabout individual with shining cheeks, looked at the official who had arrested them with defiant eyes. What is it? What is it, Hockdoor? The local policeman made his deposition. He had gone out that morning at his usual time in order to patrol his beat from the forest of Champeau as far as the boundaries of Argentile. He had not noticed anything unusual in the country except that it was a fine day and that the wheat was doing well. When the son of Obradell, who was going over his vines, called out to him, Here, Daddy Hogdoer, go and have a look at the outskirts of the wood. In the first thicket, you will find a pair of pigeons who must be at least 160 years old between them. He went in the direction indicated, entered the thicket, and there he heard words which made him suspect a flagrant breach of morality. Advancing, therefore, on his hands and knees as if to surprise a poacher, he had arrested the couple whom he had found there. The mayor looked at the culprits in astonishment, for the man was certainly sixty, and the woman fifty-five at least, and he began to question them, beginning with the man, who replied in such a weak voice that he could scarcely be heard. What is your name? Nicholas Borain. Your occupation? Haberdasher, in the Rue de Marty, in Paris. What were you doing in the wood? The haberdasher remained silent, with his eyes fixed on his fat paunch, and his hands hanging at his sides, and the mayor continued. Do you deny what the officer of the municipal authority states? No, monsieur. So you confess it? Yes, monsieur. What have you to say in your defense? Nothing, monsieur. Where did you meet the partner in your misdemeanor? She is my wife, monsieur. Your wife? Yes, monsieur. Then, then you do not live together in Paris? I beg your pardon, monsieur, but we are living together. But in that case, you must be mad, altogether mad, my dear sir, to get caught playing lovers in the country at ten o'clock in the morning. The haberdasher seemed ready to cry with shame, and he muttered, It was she who enticed me. I told her it was very stupid, but when a woman once gets a thing into her head, you know, you, you cannot get it out. The mayor, who liked a joke, smiled and replied, in your case, the contrary ought to have happened. 
you would not be here if she had had the idea only in her head. Then Monsieur Borain was seized with rage and turning to his wife, he said, do you see what you have brought us to with your poetry? And now we shall have to go before the courts at our age for a breach of morals. And we shall have to shut up the shop, sell our goodwill and, and go to some other neighborhood. That's what it has come to. Madame Borain got up and without looking at her husband, she explained herself without embarrassment, without useless modesty, and almost without hesitation. Of course, monsieur, I know that we have made ourselves ridiculous. Will you allow me to plead my case like an advocate, or rather like a poor woman? And I hope that you will be kind enough to send us home and to spare us the disgrace of, of a prosecution. Years ago, when I was young, I made Monsieur Bahrain's acquaintance one Sunday in this neighborhood. He was employed in a draper's shop, and I was a saleswoman in a ready-made clothing establishment. I remember it as if it were yesterday. I used to come and spend Sundays here occasionally with a friend of mine, Rose Levesque, with whom I lived in the Rue Pigalle, and Rose had a sweetheart while I had none. He used to bring us here, and one Saturday he told me laughing that he should bring a friend with him the next day. I quite understood what he meant, but I replied that it would be no good, for I was virtuous, monsieur. The next day we met Monsieur Borain at the railway station, and in those days he was good-looking, but I had made up my mind not to encourage him, and I did not. Well, we arrived at Bizon's. It was a lovely day, the sort of day that touches your heart. When it is a fine, even now, just just as it used to be formerly, I, I grow quite foolish, and when I am in the country, I utterly lose my head. The green grass, the swallows fly, flying so swiftly, the smell of the grass, the scarlet poppies, the daisies, all that makes me crazy. It is like champagne when one is not accustomed to it. Well, it was lovely weather, warm and bright, and it seemed to penetrate your body through your eyes when you looked and through your mouth when you breathed. Rose and Simon hugged and kissed every other minute, and that gave me a queer feeling. Monsieur Borain and I walked behind them, without speaking much, for when people do not know each other, they do not find anything to talk about. He looked timid, and I liked to see his embarrassment. At last we got to the little wood. It was as cool as in a bath there, and we four sat down. Rose and her lover teased me because I looked rather stern, but you will understand that I could not be otherwise. And then they began to kiss and hug again, and without putting any more restraint, restraint upon themselves than if we had not been there. And then they whispered together, and they got up and went off alone with this young fellow whom, without saying a word, you may fancy what I looked like alone with this young fellow whom I saw for the first time. I felt so confused at seeing them go that it gave me courage, and, and I began to talk. I asked him what his business was, and he said that he was a linen draper's assistant, and as I just told you now, we talked for a few minutes, and, and that made him bold, and he wanted to take liberties with me, but I told him sharply to keep his place. Is that not true, Monsieur Bahrain? Monsieur Bahrain, who was looking at his feet in confusion, did not reply, and she continued, then he saw that I was virtuous, and he began to make love to me nicely, like an honorable man, and from that time he came every Sunday, for he was very much in love with me. I was very fond of him also, very fond of him. He was a good-looking fellow formerly, and in short, he married me the next September, and we started in business in the Rue des Martyrs. 
It was a hard struggle for some years, monsieur. Business did not prosper, and we could not afford many country excursions. And besides, we, we had got way out of the way of them. One has other things in one's head, and one thinks more of the cash box than of pretty speeches when one is in business. We were growing old by degrees without perceiving it, like quiet people who do, who do not think much about love. One does not regret anything as long as one does not notice what one has lost. And then, monsieur, business became better, and we were tranquil as to the future. Then, you see, I do not know exactly what went on in my mind. No, I really do not know, but I began to dream like a little boarding school girl. The sight of the little carts full of flowers which are drawn about the streets made me cry. The smell of violets sought me in my easy chair behind my cash box and made my heart beat. Then I would get up and go out on the doorstep to look at the blue sky between the roofs, which one... When one looks up at the sky from the street, it looks like a river which is descending on Paris, winding as it flows, and the swallows pass to and fro in it like fish. These ideas are very stupid at my age, but how can one help it, monsieur, when one has worked all one's life? A moment comes in which one perceives that one could have done something else, and that one regrets, oh yes, one feels intense regret. Just think, for twenty years I might have gone and had kisses in the woods, like other women— I used to think how delightful it would be to lie under the trees and be in love with someone. And I thought of it every day and every night. I dreamed of the moonlight on the water until I felt inclined to drown myself. I did not venture to speak to Monsieur Borain about this at first. I, I knew that he would make fun of me and send me back to sell my needles and cotton. And then, to speak the truth, Monsieur Borain never said much to me, but... When I looked in the glass, I, I also understood quite well that I no longer appealed to anyone. Well, I made up my mind, and I proposed to him an excursion into the country, to the place where we had first become acquainted. He agreed without mistrusting anything, and we arrived here this morning about nine o'clock. I felt quite young again when I got amongst the wheat, for a woman's heart never grows old. And really, I no longer saw my husband as he is at present, but just as he was formerly. That I will swear to you, monsieur. As true as I am standing here, I was crazy. I began to kiss him, and he was more surprised than if I had tried to murder him. He kept saying to me, why, you must be mad. You are mad this morning. What is the matter with you? I did not listen to him. I only used and listened to my own heart, and I made him come into the wood with me. That is all. I have spoken the truth, Monsieur Le Maire, the whole truth. The mayor was a sensible man. He rose from his chair, smiled, and said, Go in peace, madame, and when you again visit our forests, be more discreet. And that is the end of In the Wood. Thank you so much for listening. Please stay tuned for the next story. This one is called A Dead Woman's Secret. The woman had died without pain, quietly, as a woman should, whose life had been blameless. Now she was resting in her bed, lying on her back, her eyes closed, her features calm, her long white hair carefully arranged as though she had done it up ten minutes before dying. 
the whole pale countenance of the dead woman was so collected, so calm, so resigned, that one could feel what a sweet soul had lived in that body. What a quiet existence this old soul had led. How easy and pure the death of this parent had been. Kneeling beside the bed, her son, a magistrate with inflexible principles, and her daughter, Marguerite, known as Sister Eula Lee, were weeping as though their hearts would break. She had, from childhood up, armed them with a strict moral code, teaching them religion without weakness and duty without compromise. He, the man, had become a judge and handled the law as a weapon with which he smote the weak ones without pity. She, the girl, influenced by the virtue which had bathed her in this austere family, had become the bride of the church through her loathing for man. They had hardly known their father, knowing only that he had made their mother most unhappy without being told any other details. The nun was wildly kissing the dead woman's hand, an ivory hand as white as the large crucifix lying across the bed. On the other side of the long body, the other hand seemed still to be holding the sheet in the death grasp, and the sheet had preserved the little creases as a memory of those last movements which precede eternal immobility. A few light taps on the door caused the two sobbing heads to look up, and the priest, who had just come from dinner, returned. He was red and out of breath from his interrupted digestion, for he had made himself a strong mixture of coffee and brandy in order to combat the fatigue of the last few nights and of the wake which was beginning. He looked sad with that amused, assumed sadness of the priest for whom death is a breadwinner. He crossed himself and, approaching with his professional gesture, "'Well, my poor children, I have come to help you pass these last sad hours.' But Sister Eulalie suddenly arose. "'Thank you, Father, but my brother and I prefer to remain alone with her. This is our last chance to see her, and we wish to be together, all three of us, as we as we used to be when we were small and our poor m- m- mother.' Grief and tears stopped her, and she could not continue. Once more serene, the priest bowed, thinking of his bed. "'As you wish, my children.' He kneeled, crossed himself, prayed, arose, and went out quietly, murmuring, She was a saint. They remained alone, the dead woman and her children. The ticking of the clock, hidden in the shadow, could be heard distinctly, and through the open window drifted in the sweet smell of hay and of woods, together with the soft moonlight. No other noise could be heard over the land except the occasional croaking of the frog or the chirping of some belated insect. An infinite peace, a divine melancholy, a silent serenity surrounded this dead woman, seemed to be breathed out from her and to appease nature itself. Then the judge, still kneeling, his head buried in the bedclothes, cried in a voice altered by grief and deadened by the sheets and the blankets, Mama, Mama, Mama! And his sister, frantically striking her forehead against the wood, convulsed, twitching and trembling as in an epileptic fit, moaned, Jesus, Jesus, Mama, Jesus. And both of them, shaken by a storm of grief, gasped and choked. The crisis slowly calmed down, and they began to weep quietly, just as on the sea when a calm follows a a squall. 
A rather long time passed, and they arose and looked at their dead. And the memories, those distant memories, yesterday so dear, today so torturing, came to their minds with all the little forgotten details, those little intimate familiar details which bring back to life the one who has left. They recalled to each other circumstances, words, smiles, annotations of the mother who was no longer able to speak to them. They saw her again happy and calm. They remembered things which she had said, and a little motion of the hand, like beating time, when she often used, which she often used when emphasizing something important. And they loved her as they never loved her before. They measured the depth of their grief, and thus they discovered how lonely they would find themselves. It was their prop, their guide, their whole youth, all the best part of their lives, which was disappearing. It was their bond with life their mother, their mama, the connecting link with their forefathers, which they would thenceforth miss. They now became solitary, lonely beings. They could no longer look back. The nun said to the brother, you remember how mama used to always read her old letters. They are all there in the drawer. Let us in turn read them. Let us live her whole life through tonight beside her. It would be like a road to the cross, like making the acquaintance of her mother, of our grandparents whom we never knew, but whose letters are there and of whom she so often spoke. Do, do you remember? Out of the drawer, they took out about ten little packages of yellow paper tied with care and arranged one beside the other. They threw these relics on the bed and chose one of them on which the word father was written. They opened and read it. It was one of those old-fashioned letters which one finds in an old family desk drawer, those epistles which smell of another century. The first one started, My dear. Another one, My beautiful little girl. Others, My dear child or My dear daughter. And suddenly the nun began to read aloud, to read over to the dead woman her whole history, all her tender memories. The judge, resting on his elbow on the bed, was listening with his eyes fastened on his mother. The motionless body seemed happy. Sister Eulalie, interrupting herself, said suddenly, These ought to be put in the grave with her. They ought to be used as a shroud, and she ought to be buried in it. She took another package on which no name was written. She began to read in a firm voice, My adored one, I love you wildly. Since yesterday, I have been suffering the tortures of the damned, haunted by our memory. I feel your lips against mine and your eyes, your breast against mine. I love you. I love you. You have driven me mad. My arms open. I gasp, moved by a wild desire to hold you yet again. My whole soul and body cries out for you, wants you. I have kept in my mouth the taste of your kisses. The judge had straightened himself up. The nun stopped reading. He snatched the letter from her and looked for the signature. There was none, but only under the words, The man who adores you, the name Henry. Their father's name was René. Therefore, this was not from him. The son quickly rummaged through the package of letters, took one out and read, I can no longer live without your caresses. Standing erect, severe as when sitting on the bench, he looked unmoved at the dead woman. The nun, straight as a statue, tears trembling in the corners of her eyes, was watching her brother, waiting. Then he crossed the room, slowly, went to the window and stood there, gazing out into the dark night. 
When he turned around again, Sister Eulalie, her eyes dry now, was still standing near the bed, her head bent down. He stepped forward, quickly picked up the letters, and threw them pell-mell back into the drawer. Then he closed the curtains of the bed. When daylight made the candles on the table turn pale, the son slowly left his armchair, and without looking again at the mother upon whom he had passed sentence, severing the tie that united her to son and daughter, he said slowly, "'Let us now retire, sister.'" And that's the end of the short story called A Dead Woman's Secret. Please stay tuned for the next story. And this one, my friends, is called Indiscretion. They had loved each other before marriage with a pure and lofty love. They had first met on the seashore. He had thought this young girl charming as she passed by with her light-colored parasol and her dainty dress amid the marine landscape against the horizon. He had loved her, blonde and slender, in these surroundings of blue ocean and spacious sky. He could not distinguish the tenderness which this budding woman awoke in him from the vague and powerful emotion which the fresh salt air and the grand scenery of surf and sunshine and waves aroused in his soul. She, on the other hand, had loved him because he courted her, because he was young, rich, kind, and attentive. She had loved him because it is natural for young girls to love men who whisper sweet nothings to them. So for three months they had lived side by side and hand in hand, the greeting which they exchanged in the morning before the bath, in the freshness of the morning, or in the evening on the sand under the stars, in the warmth of a calm night, whispered low, very low, already had the flavor of kisses, though their lips had never met. Each dreamed of the other at night, each thought of the other on awaking, and, without yet having voiced their sentiments, each longed for the other, body and soul. After marriage, their love descended to earth. It was at first a tireless, sensuous passion, then exalted tenderness composed of tangible poetry, more refined caresses, and new and foolish inventions. Every glance and gesture was an expression of passion. But little by little, without even noticing it, they began to get tired of each other. Love was still strong, but they had nothing more to reveal to each other, nothing more to learn from each other, no new tale of endearment, no unexpected outburst, no new way of expressing, of expressing the well-known, often repeated verb. They tried, however, to rekindle the dwindling flame of the first love. Every day they tried some new trick or desperate attempt to bring back to their hearts the uncooled ardor of their first days of married life. They tried moonlight walks under the trees in the sweet warmth of the summer evenings, the poetry of mist-covered beaches, the excitement of public festivals. One morning, Henriette said to Paul, "'Will you take me to a café for dinner?' "'Certainly, dearie. To some well-known café?' "'Of course.' He looked at her with a questioning glance, saying that she was thinking of something which she did not wish to tell. She went on, You know, one of those cafes, oh, how can I explain myself, a, a sporty cafe. He smiled. Of course, I understand. You mean in one of the cafes which are commonly called bohemian. 
Yes, that's it. But take me to one of the big places, one where you are known, one where you have already supped, no, dined. Well, you know, I, I, oh, I will never dare say it. Go ahead, dearie. Little secrets should no longer exist between us. No, I, I dare not. Go on. Don't be prudish. Tell me. Well, I, I, I want to be taken for your sweetheart there, and I want the boys who do not know that you are married to take me for such, and you too. I want you to think that I am your sweetheart for one hour in that place which must much hold so many memories for you. There, and, and I will play that I am your sweetheart. It's awful, I know. I, I am abominably ashamed. I, I am as red as a peony. Don't look at me. He laughed, greatly amused, and answered, All right, we will go tonight to a very swell place where I am well known. Toward seven o'clock, they went up the stairs of one of the big cafes on the boulevard, he smiling with the look of a conqueror. She, timid, veiled, delighted. They were immediately shown to one of the luxurious private dining rooms, furnished with four large armchairs and a red plush couch. The head waiter entered and brought them the menu. Paul handed it to his wife. What do you want to eat? I don't care. Order whatever is good. After handing his coat to the waiter, he ordered dinner and champagne. The waiter looked at the young woman and smiled. He took the order and murmured, Will Monsieur Paul have his champagne sweet or dry? Dry, very dry. Henriette was pleased to hear that this man knew her husband's name. They sat on the couch side by side and began to eat. Ten candles lighted the room and were reflected in the mirrors all around them, which seemed to increase the brilliancy a thousandfold. Henriette drank glass after glass in order to keep up her courage, although she felt dizzy after the first few glasses. Paul, excited by the memories which returned to him, kept kissing his wife's hands. His eyes were sparkling. She was feeling strangely excited in this new place, restless, pleased, a little guilty, but full of life. Two waiters, serious, silent, accustomed to seeing and forgetting everything, to entering the room only when it was necessary, and to leaving, and to leaving it when they felt they were intruding, were silently flitting hither and thither. Toward the room of toward the middle of the dinner, Henriette was well under the influence of champagne. She was prattling along fearlessly, her cheeks flushed, her eyes glistening. Come, Paul, tell me everything. What, sweetheart? I don't dare tell you. Go on. Have you loved many women before me? He hesitated, a little perplexed, not knowing whether he should hide his adventures or boast of them. She continued, Oh, please tell me, how many have you loved? A few. How many? I don't know. How do you expect me to know such things? Haven't you counted them? Of course not. Then you must have loved a good many. Perhaps. About how many? Just, just tell me about how many. But I don't know, dearest. Some years a good many and some years only a few. How many a year? Did you say? Sometimes twenty or thirty, sometimes only four or five. Oh, that makes more than a hundred and all. Yes, just about. Oh, I think that is dreadful. Why dreadful? Because it's dreadful when you think of it. All those women and always, always the same thing. Oh, it's dreadful. Just the same more than a hundred women. He was surprised that she should think that dreadful and answered with the air of superiority, which men take with women when they wish to make them understand that they have said something foolish. That's funny. If it is dreadful to have a hundred women, 
It's dreadful to have one. Oh, no, not at all. Why not? Because with one woman, you have a real bond of love, which attaches you to her. While with a hundred women, it's not the same at all. There is no real love. I, I don't understand how a man can associate with such women. But they are all right. No, they can't be. Yes, they are. Oh, stop. You disgust me. But then why did you ask me how many sweethearts I had had? Because that's no reason. What were they, actresses, little shop girls, or society women? A few of each. It must have been rather monotonous toward the last. Oh, no, it's amusing to change. She remained thoughtful, staring at her champagne glass. It, it was full. She drank it in one gulp, then putting it back on the table, she threw her arms around her husband's neck and murmured in his ear, Oh, how I love you, sweetheart, how I love you. He threw his arms around her in a passionate embrace. A waiter, who was just entering, backed out, closing the door discreetly. In about five minutes, the head waiter came back, solemn and dignified, bringing the fruit for dessert. She was once more holding between her fingers a full glass and gazing into the amber liquid as though seeking unknown things. She murmured in a dreamy voice, Yes, it must be fun. And that brings us to the end of today's short story segment, my friends. Thank you so much listening here at Carlet Reads the Classics. Now, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to access all the present and upcoming content to get your merchandise and or to make a donation to the podcast. And you will find links to all of that in the episode details. Thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it. Until next time. <music>